I am Plot on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Jen Sukfong Lee joins me now. She just published a memoir, Superfan, How Pop Culture Broke My Heart. It is a thoroughly engaging, fun, and funny book where we get to know Jen in her formative years through the popular culture she consumes and loves. And as she gets older, or better yet, grows, we see how that relationship to certain books, music, film, and television might evolve or change altogether. The book is also urgent, wise, and necessary as it addresses important subjects such as violence, cultural identity, mental health, grief, racism, and abuse. It will often be enlightening for the reader, just as it will induce rage when one thinks of the nonsense that continues around us. I'll ask Jen about uh, writing this book and the topics therein that she addresses. I'll uh, ask her about uh, her upbringing in East Vancouver, where she was born, and not far from uh, where she lives today. I'll ask her about the uh, Chinese-Canadian household that she grew up in, her four sisters and her uh, father and mother. Jen divides her childhood between the time before her father had cancer and his death when uh, she was 12 years old. I'll ask her about how his death affected her, uh, her family, and especially her mother, who uh, is a character throughout the book, one that is complicated, uh, who amongst us isn't, and one who Jen seeks to understand and accept in childhood and now adulthood, and especially in the years since she became a mother herself. Some of the cultural touchstones that Jen reflects on in the book include Anne of Green Gables, Evelyn Lau, Bob Ross, Chris Jenner, Rihanna, the Joy Luck Club, Justin Bieber, and Princess Diana, among many others. Jen Sukfung Lee acquires and edits for ECW Press and co-hosts the literary podcast Can't Lit, she is the author of the acclaimed books that can join The Better Mother, The End of East, The Shadow List, and Finding Home. She was uh, on this program last year to discuss the collection Good Mom on Paper, Writers on Creativity and Motherhood. The website for more is at sukfong.com. This new book is published by McClelland and Stewart. Please welcome back to the Plant Online program, Jen Sukfong Lee. Ms. Lee, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, congratulations on this book. I, I, I found it... Um, just, I found it both a gift in, in terms of, of um, uh, getting to know you, as, as we do. Um, you bear yourself uh, through this book, uh, uh, throughout the book. Um, I also found it necessary. Um, mm. there, there's some important topics that you address, urgent things that you talk about. Um, when you are talking about yourself, though, do, do you find that easy? Not at all. <laughs> I, I actually kind of really hate it. I, I've spent most of my life writing fiction or writing nonfiction about other people, not about me. Um, so it was actually not something I enjoyed. I mean, I don't think, uh, you know, I just don't like myself that much, you know, like a regular person to spend that much time <laughs> with my own thoughts and my own life. But no, it was actually quite difficult to write about uh, things in my life with like any sort of like, uh, what would I call it, literary skill or distancing even. Yeah, there's a scene in the book where, where um, a couple times where you mentioned this actually, where, where you're at book signing, say, and, and um, uh, young people come up to you, young mm-hmm. women especially, Asian women especially, come up to you, and, and um, a lot of them are crying um, because they they see see themselves in you, and I can't help but think as I'm reading Superfan that that um, there'll be a lot of people who see themselves or see their family situation in this, and and. Uh, find the book incredibly valuable, and, and um, because of that, don't you think it was worth it to write to write, write this book? Say, yeah, I think it was worth it, and I think that there's something um, 
even if I never wrote anything that was, uh, say, you know, socio-political or anything like that, even if I never did that, I, I often think that my presence in sort of um, publishing or Canadian literature uh, means a lot to people, just even just visually. Um, I think that, you know, when I wrote that in the book about often young women, young racialized women coming to talk to me at events and <laughs> often crying, which is yeah. it's, it's a little unsettling, but it's okay. You, you, anyone can have their feelings. It's fine. Um, it's, uh, it's, I think, for that, that's a big part of it, for them to be able to see that um, space can be made or there is space for people who want to tell their stories who look like me. Um, and I think that Superfan um, really specifically talks about sort of who we are um, when we're trying to find our, our space in a world that doesn't reflect ourselves back to us. And I think that for younger people, that could be really that could be something that they really need to hear. I mean, uh, I mean, it's hard to say. I don't really know how anyone's going to or is thinking about it. I, I just really felt like the stories that I am telling in Superfan about my life are not ones that we've read in sort of um, mm. in sort of Canadian literature yet. So there you go. Yeah, um, and you do such a marvelous job in terms of using pop culture as a guide. Um, in terms of um, uh, thinking about aspects of your own life, about your upbringing, um, uh, th- things you're thinking about, things around you. Um, you, you write that pop culture is what got you through a number of disasters, and I, I think that's what um, that's why we like the things we like, isn't it? The, the, because these things, um, uh, we fall in love with them. Uh, we have complicated relationships with them sometimes, um, but they're with us, aren't they? They're always with us. And I, and I think that when, you know, we think about our why we like something, and it could be anything as, like, you know, vacuous as, like, say, love is blind. Not that love is blind is always vacuous, <laughs> I shouldn't say. But, like, it could be something as popular, really, yeah. as, like, a love is blind. Um, and I think oftentimes we walk through our lives not really interrogating or examining why we like something, but I think that a lot of it is that something means it means something important to us at a particular time in our life whenever we needed it. And I think that if we think about that a little bit more, I do believe that that thoughtfulness will end up being kind of contagious and you end up being thoughtful about everything, every decision you make, every, you know, dollar you spend when you're buying, you know, entrance into a movie or whatever. Mm. Um, And that thoughtfulness can only really help us, you know, just sort of as, not to be too broad-minded about it, like as a society, I say, with air quotes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah they, they, that's the thing that I admire about you, is that as you write in the book, you don't discriminate between, say, high culture and low culture, um, and, and we shouldn't do that. Uh, what do you think we lose, say, when we um, do things like that, like dismiss the Kardashians as, as something to talk <laughs> about, or, or Instagram even, or popular music? I think that, um, first of all, I think that uh, there are many barriers uh, to accessing, quote-unquote, high culture for a lot of people. Mm. Um, And if we take away people's engagement with what we call low culture, then you're actually taking away people's cultural sort of engagement because there's a whole portion of of our world that doesn't have access to, you know, the Tate Modern in London that doesn't have access to any of the Guggenheim museums. Like, they're just never going to have that. So um, it's important in a democratic sense to make sure that we treat people's engagement with whatever kind of culture with the same sort of gravity. 
Um, but I also think, you know, popular culture, the things, like you say, the Kardashians or whatever, um, they really do reflect our society's preoccupations, what we love, what hurts us, um, what we are most engaged with. All of those things say a lot about where we are and actually can show us a way about where we should be going to if we look at it um, with a really sharp eye. So. You know, there is no difference, really, in my view, between like yeah. popular culture and high culture. Yeah, I had I interviewed a guy one time who who was a, a big fan of the the Real Housewives series, mm-hmm. um, and this is about um, six seven years ago now, um, and he he told me that that um, you have to pay attention to these these shows because this will affect what will happen, say, in in a in the political world, and and he was alluding to Trump, mm-hmm. and and I think that made. Um, I mean, I, I sort of scoffed probably at the time, but but in, in retrospect, it does make a lot of sense that it, where culture is is usually where we are as a society or where we'll become. Yeah, and I think, like, there's an argument to be made for any of those things, but I think, like, you know, not to harp on the Kardashians, but I yeah. think what they re- um, reflect back to is, is this kind of, like, what's happening with late-stage capitalism, what's happening yeah. with, like, um, monetizing and appropriating um, other cultures, like what's happening with, and this is a big deal actually, like um, the ways in which women see their bodies and body image, like that's a huge thing. And yeah. and those are big topics, like huge, huge topics. And the Kardashians manage somehow <laughs> to encapsulate all of them. Yeah. You, you divide your childhood in, in the book um, uh, as, say, before your father's cancer and after. Um, I I quite like your parents, reading about them, uh, as you, you depict them in the book. Um, let's start with your dad first. Um, uh, what kind of life was it like for him uh, to be surrounded by women, and not, not just you and your sisters and your mother, um, but, say, early in his life? He was surrounded by a lot of women growing up, wasn't he? Yeah, and he the only man in his life was my grandfather, who actually they didn't live together until my father was a teenager uh-huh. because of um, immigration policies. Right. Um, uh, you know, he was a really gentle guy. Um, I write in the book he was conflict avoidant. That's 100% true. He, <laughs> he always knew if there was a fight between two women, he had to step out of the way and just let it play out. Uh, the other thing he used to do, I remember, um, we had a house that was like one of those East End bungalows, uh, uh-huh. the house before, um, the one that my mom he actually still lives in. And he had built like a bathroom in the basement and it was just his bathroom and, he would hide in there with, like, a newspaper, and I'm confident he wasn't always doing any <laughs> business at all. So I, I, I think that he had to find ways to sort of, um, you know, be alone because <laughs> there were a lot of people in the house. But he was, like, a really gentle guy, and I used to say he was the first uh, Chinese-Canadian male feminist because he didn't have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> um, the... Um... And this goes into a thing about a culture that I was thinking about as I was reading the book. You talk about the guys in movies and books that you were drawn to, say, growing up, mm-hmm. um, that you're still drawn to even. Um, how many of those do you think were stand-ins for your father after his death? Um, that's a great question. I, you know, not to get very Freudian, I, I think that, like, for sure Bob Ross was. The, yeah, I certainly viewed him as a fatherly figure, a mm-hmm. nurturing one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the boys that I was attracted to, that's a great question. I, I think I was just, 
so, I felt so bereft of male figures in my life, period, that, that being boy crazy was probably going to be a matter of course. Like, I don't think that that was, um, a surprise to anyone. <laughs> yeah. You lost your father at 12. And, and at 12. That's a very yeah. important age for any child. And, and I would think, yeah, you, it would affect, um, the the kind of guys that you you wanted to to get to know I guess right yeah and I think that also my dad was like a creative soft spoken kind of like but actually quite charming um, guy and I think that that kind of artistic you know alternative boy was the thing that I was most drawn to so yeah you're you've just made a connection Joe that I have not so thank you <laughs> um, the, the um, I, I did mention a moment ago that it was that, that um, you were 12 when 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 he died um, the relationship that or the how you view him say in in retrospect is is that different than say your older sisters who had more time with him oh I'm sure I think that actually my oldest sister phoned me last week because she had just finished reading huh. super fast. She read it super fast. I don't know. Yeah. And um, she did mention that she thought it was uh, remarkable that, like, our memories of our family were so different, hers and mine. Of course, we grew up in two different times. And, yeah. You know, um, we're two different people. But um, I think it's quite different. I think what my sisters remember is more fulsome. Um, but I also think that because I remember little. I I have a tendency to question everything I remember. So I think that, you know, in some odd way, I'm less likely to put my father on a pedestal because I always just assume there's something else there that I'm not remembering, Mm -hmm. something that is a flaw or a mistake or whatever. I'm not sure my sisters do that. I don't. I think they kind of don't. I think he's still on a pedestal in their heads. In the book, you compare your mother to Kris Jenner. Chris yeah. um, Jenner, say, being at one end, incredibly involved in, in the lives of her children, and then your mother, say, at another end, who's uh, not, not quite. Um, I was going to ask you to describe her, but, but, but I think however somebody describes her, um, after, um, to, to people who are obviously listeners who haven't read the book, I think it, w- it would do her, do her a disservice because I think um, she, she's a very nuanced character, and as I said a moment ago, I really liked her reading about her in your book, uh, even though there are times where she does um, not so nice things. Say, mm-hmm. um, the, the, but at the at another um, point, I, I think it's important to um, look at say her whole life and, and see that that, that um, it's it's hard to explain, isn't it, to, for, for people? Right? I mean. Um, yeah, she's a complicated person, and I and I think that it was very clear to me, really young, that she was very complicated. And uh-huh. I think that with this book, I tried so hard to understand her, and and uh, you know, and I, my sister did say that she thought it was very sympathetic toward my mother, yeah. um, and. And this is one of my sisters whose whose relationship with a mother is actually even more conflicted than mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I think that like. You know, she's, there are so many things about my mom that um, seem really nonsensical, but the more I dug into who she was and, and the way life had treated her, they really weren't nonsensical at all. Yeah. And yeah. I think I really tried to make sure that I conveyed that in the book. I, I was, that was one of the questions I was going to ask, with, um, whether um, others in your family, people who know her, say, um, will think that you were uh, 
kind to her in the book, and and I I I think you were. Um, some people might wonder, maybe we should ask her, but she, she's never read any of your books, has she? No, she does not read English, which is uh, <laughs> which is like an ideal situation sometimes. I, I gotta say, <laughs> uh, I, I I joke about it, yeah. uh, but the. Uh, you know what? I my sister who did read it the whole thing already. I think the others are still in the middle of it. Said she thought I was being quite kind to her, which is which is I'm glad because I don't. I'm not trying to do like a character assassination. Sure. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then as 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 a reader of the book, I I I found I had great empathy for her. Um, and um, by the way, for people listening to us, the, the um, there's a beautiful scene at, at, at I think at the end of the book where she she's she's holding your first novel. And um, she asks you if the mother in the book is about her, and, and this look of disappointment comes upon her face um, uh, because you say it's not explicitly about her, but you know um, it, it may be in some parts. Um, and and she asks you, uh, or she, she, I can't remember now what the quote is, but but she hopes that you're kind to the mother. Yeah. And yeah. And I think you were in the book. Um, um, but, but the thing I kept wondering, Jen, as I was reading it, was. Um, if she had had, say, the language to, to seek help, and I'm not just talking about speaking English, but she's obviously of a different generation than you and me, um, might life have been infinitely better for, for not just her but, but everyone around her? Oh, I think so. If mental health issues were something people talked about when she was younger, I think actually things would have been much, much better. Like, if, you know, with the, with the clarity of 2020 vision, I can see that my mother's main problem is, probably quite a severe anxiety disorder uh-huh. and that that anxiety triggered a lot of her bouts of depression um and i say this because i myself have an anxiety disorder which can lead to depression and this is something that i've worked on my whole life like i've had the benefit i've been in counseling off and on since i was eight years old uh since my father got sick actually uh-huh. and um so i have the benefit of you know many years of professionals actually helping me with all of those things um, and I think that had my mother had those things, she would have been so much, uh, so much happier, really. And then we would all have been much happier. Yeah, yeah. And I can't think, uh, I can't help but think that people will read this and, and find it relatable in a way. This part of the book, especially. Mm-hmm. And see their own family situations in it. And, and yeah, and I don't think there's many like with like. Uh, people in their 80s who sought mental health help probably not yeah yeah indeed um getting to this point where where you understand her um and accept her as you do um do you think being a parent yourself that 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 probably helped yeah i think so i think that you know having um especially when your children are, are small and they require a lot of active parenting um, and you're probably quite sleep deprived. That's a really difficult time in your life. Now imagine my mom had five. Yeah, <laughs> so, like, yeah. That's a lot. And um, I totally do get it. Motherhood is a challenging thing, especially if you're somebody who's not like um, what would I call it. Like you know, there are some people who really, really love spending all of their time with children. Yeah. Um, many of us are not that person, and that's fine. And that doesn't make us any worse parents. But it doesn't. It does mean that your sense of self gets very depleted. Um, and then when my dad got sick, I think it was even heightened, worse, way worse. So I do 100% understand that. You don't really understand the sleep deprivation of having a child until you have one, <laughs> which is like, yeah, a big thing. Yeah, see, as a guy and, and someone who doesn't have children, um, 
That's something that that, that, that I can't seem to understand. And no, no. And it's, like, different. Like, it's, like, you know, sometimes, you know, people who don't have children can have, like, sleep issues, right? Oh, sure. Insomnia, yeah. Yeah. sure, all that stuff. But it's actually a lot worse when you actually want to sleep and there is a small little psychopath preventing you from sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> um, she's a, a, a very different grandmother than she is a mother. Um, what is it like to talk to, to your, your child and, and your nephews and nieces um, not just you, but your sister, say, in terms of, of how she is to them as opposed to how they were to you guys? Uh, they, my nieces and nephews, and my my own child really think my mother is hilarious. Uh-huh. <laughs> my mother's actually quite funny. Uh-huh. Um, she has quite a sense of humor, and, and you know, she's, she's actually quite charming, um, generally. And um, so they really find her really funny. Everything she does makes them laugh, you know. Like, you know, when she's trying to give them discount candy or, you know, she eats something that one of us has made and it's terrible and she'll just say so. Like, they just they, they just think she's funny. So, you know, I think that I've never hid from my my child or any other of the grandkids um, the ways in which my mother was when we were growing up. But I, didn't, I don't see any point in hiding that. But what I've told my son especially is that, you know, people change, right? Mm-hmm. And when people get older, they often soften their edges and um you know she's a good grandma you can't it's one of the joys of my life to see that these kids really love her um and i hope that makes her happy i'm gonna mm-hmm. cry i hope that makes her happy mm-hmm. <laughs> is, is there part of you though that resents that, that that um that wasn't part of your own upbringing say yeah i think so because because she was always capable of being mm-hmm. this person right yeah, and yeah. and um and she she couldn't or chose not to or who knows or a combination of both probably when we were growing up and uh, that it makes me actually quite sad because you know like I said if she'd sought or gotten mental health help she might have been able to we might have gotten more of this version of my mother than we did yeah indeed indeed um, what's great to see in the book is is um, the, the growth that happens not just to say uh, as we've been talking now about your family and your relationships with members of your family but the the, the relationship that you have with 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 popular with aspects of popular culture for example the end of green gables books um you, you narrate for us uh in in the book um what what they were like to read for the first time as a child um subsequent rereadings um especially uh after your divorce um they become such a part of your life um what is it like to um, say um, experience these things at, at different ages? I mean, um, these things change, don't they? Yeah, and I think what we get out of them changes, and our opinions about them change. I think um, as I got older, I got to see that there's actually quite a lot of like grief and loss, mm-hmm. and um, you know, separations and all sorts of things in the Anne books, and. There's a lot of truth, emotional truth, in those books. I think that because um, they are, you know, popular books, they're commercial books, and they can sometimes be denigrated as being like melodramatic or sentimental or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think there is a lot of emotional truth there, particularly um, for someone like me who experienced sort of like grief and loss really young and continue to do so throughout their lives. Um, I think that looking back at like the Joy Luck Club, for example, had a lot of surprises for me that I didn't know it would because I didn't actually reread or rewatch the movie until I was writing this book since I was like really young. Uh-huh. And um it I was I had not expected 
that my mind would change because I had really quite disliked it for a long time. And then I, I, you know, watched it and reread it again, and I thought, well, I was wrong. Jen Suk Fong Lee, you were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about things that you liked once that um, you can't now? I mean, there's a lot of that for a lot of people yeah. nowadays in the last five, six years, say, um, where the fandom has faded. Um, yeah, I think that, like, in particular, I think for me, it's like uh, Say Anything, the movie, and Dead Poet Society. I They're difficult for me to like now because uh-huh. all I see are problematic men <laughs> objectifying women. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, yeah, that, that's something that... It's this version of romance, right, that gets fed to us when we're young in, like, teen rom-coms or whatever, that if a boy just persists, persists, and persists, he'll get the girl and she'll fall in love with him. Well, at one, at some point, persistence becomes stalking yeah. and harassment. So yeah. this is where, you know, I, ha- I have a difficult time with those movies. Now, I can watch parts of them, but I, I don't really watch the whole thing. Yeah, it's a great thing about YouTube, isn't it? We can, late at night, go, go and watch certain clips. And then when we, we get the DVD, say, and, and, and watch it, something again, it's not that, we realize it's not that great, you know. It's not that great. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, there's a, a, ch- a chapter in the book where you, where you talk, you unpack Asian fetish, um, and you write about the rage you felt after uh, March 16, 2021, the Atlanta shooting. Um, I, I read that this past weekend, just as we were getting news about Monterey Park in California. Um it, it was tough to, to, to read, um, but you also write that it's tough. It, you, you describe and, and illustrate just how tough it was to write. There were a lot of starts and stops for uh, for that part of the book, weren't there, for you? Yeah, that was by far the most difficult chapter to write. I think it was just that um, it's a very – it's a topic, I think, that's filled inherently filled with so much shame because mm-hmm. uh, it's really hard to talk about – I mean – Joe, you know this. Like, I mean, for, like, Asian cultures, we don't really talk about our sex lives. Like, yeah, it's not yeah. something we ever talk about, especially if you're a woman. And, um, you know, it's funny to me because, like, my partner and I have this joke. Like, every time we go into a store that has, like, sex aids or sex toys, mm-hmm. I, be- I become a prudish, giggling 11-year-old <laughs> yeah, again, yeah. and I don't know what to do. Yeah. And then I just have to leave because I've just embarrassed myself because I'm just looking at things and giggling like an idiot. Yeah, yeah. But but this is not like, obviously, I'm not like a prudish person in general. So it's, it, it, it's one of the funniest things. So, yeah, writing that was really hard because you have to admit, for me anyway, having to admit that you do like the attention a lot of the time until you don't. And, and that's a hard thing to admit because then you think people are going to think, you asked for the fetishization or you asked for the harassment or the violence because mm-hmm. you liked the attention up until a point. Um, and that's not true, obviously. You don't ask for that stuff. Nobody asks for that stuff. And, and what I found fascinating is that you, you have an understanding of this at a young age, say. Um, there's a, a, a scene in the book where you're at, uh, I think it was Karate Kid Part 2. Yeah. And you realize how effed up that is. Um, yeah. The, the one scene know. in the book, yeah. yeah. And then... Yeah. Yeah. And then your your perception of, of Asian fetish changes, say, um, uh, in your 20s and then now in your 40s. Um, that, that's a thing I love about the book is is that the, the growth in your own thinking, especially on this topic especially, um, it evolves, doesn't it? It evolves quite a lot. And I think that um, it would be a mistake to not write that evolution of thought or evolution of awareness mm-hmm. because obviously – 
you know, I, w- I didn't come out, uh, I wasn't burst into the world with, like, an awareness of Asian fetish, right? Like, it was, yeah, yeah. It, that's not how it ever happens. And it's like a slow dawning um, realization. So, you know, I, I, it's funny with the Karate Kid Part 2, you just know, like, you don't have the words for it. But at that age, I think what I did know is that she was acting submissive mm. or submissively. And that is not something that I, as a loud, noisy, smart-ass, you know, 11-year-old girl would have ever wanted, right, for myself. Yeah. And then that, that, that plants the seed, right, that this is what people want from you. And then it continues and continues and continues until now, like, I'm 46, and now I'm like, you know, screw that. No one can talk to me like that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I have no more ass left to give. Yeah, yeah. Um, that part of the book also celebrates Evelyn Lau. Um, yeah, and and um, I, I I'm ashamed to say that I, I haven't read as much as I should have uh, of her work, and, and actually bought Runaway um, uh, yesterday because I wanted to read it. Um, mm-hmm. You reflect on on the media's role in the framing of her her life and her work. Um, this is a significant career that we should we should all talk about, not just because we're from Vancouver. Um, and, and, that that was an important. Um, thing for you to do in the book, wasn't it? That, that you, you had to talk yeah. about her and, and, and what yeah. she meant, right? Yeah, and also talk about how my perception of her changed mm. as time wore on because I think that, you know, in the beginning, you know, this sort of shock value, which is the way they marketed that book, yeah. fair yeah. enough, yeah. Uh, was, you know, top of mind for everybody, including me. And then as as time went on and I got to see, like, other things that she was writing and who she was, well, I mean... You know, there's a line from one of her one of her essays. I think is that is the I think it's something like the prostitution is what everyone will always remember, and I think that's a really interesting point. And because, you know, I mean, it doesn't really matter sometimes. Like if you're feeling really cynical about it, I will sometimes in a low moment think it doesn't really matter what I do. I'm always going to be perceived as an Asian female writer who writes things about you know sexuality or write things about writes about her mother all the time there's always going to be perceptions and and i think that um it was really important for me to sort of track sort of the way that i thought about her and how that changed and 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 i am pretty i'm i'm proud of how i wrote about her work um i did not write about her as a person because you know i can't do that but i can definitely talk about how i reacted to her work which has been and remains you know She's one of the most influential writers of my lifetime and has been for many, many writers. Um, I did send her a copy. I hope she's read it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so she's someone you got to know, and, and, mm-hmm. and here you are now celebrating her. Um, I'm assuming you've never met Aquafina or Amy Tan, who you also write about in the book. No, um, I, wish I, I wish I would, though. <laughs> um, what is it like to, 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 to get to know someone? who was such a part of your life. I mean, it's fun seeing young Jen in the book and and, and, um, seeing her decide that she wants to publish books, that she wants to be famous enough to be be called on by the media to talk about things. And and you are that now. And and, and here you you get to have a nice night, as we we read in the book, with with, um, Evelyn Lau at at an event and and get to talk and laugh and and hang out and... Mm -hmm. Um, what's that like for you to, to, to get to know someone that you've read, say, your, your whole life? It's super weird, especially the first, <clears throat> the first few times you, you spend time with them. It's very strange because mm. you obviously have a perception of them in your brain. Um, and you, 
they will always surprise you, right? So that's like, it's, it's quite strange. I, the first time I met her was in the 90s, and she was a writer in residence at UBC at the Creative Writing Program where I was a student, and she actually gave me feedback on one of my poems, and she was thoughtful and lovely and um, helpful and nurturing and all of those good things. And I remember thinking, you know, because the what the sort of prevailing sort of message about her work was always about the sex work. And so when um, I met her in that context, it was completely different. And it really did open my brain up at, uh, you know, 20 years old that um, a woman, particularly a Chinese-Canadian woman, can actually be all the things, mm. <laughs> everything. Um, and so, yeah, so each time, successive time I've met her, so I, I will sometimes, I see her probably once every two or three years. Mm-hmm. Um, it just It's just another facet, another thing opening up, and I get to know her a little better, and that's really lovely. Uh, and I should say, I've also met Ethan Hawke, who I write about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but like, and he was great. I Not a disappointment. I think that sometimes when we meet the people we have these sort of celebrity relationships with, their disappointments and like yeah. either of them were disappointments i just want to be very clear <laughs> yeah yeah we, uh, there's some people i don't want to meet because I'm, I'm worried about that you know yeah i think so and yeah. i and you know i i have not met uh for example john cusick and i feel like he would disappoint me <laughs> <laughs> um it, one of the things that that, that uh, i admire about you and and a lot of people admire about you is and, and you talk about this in the book about navigating the the publishing world as someone uh, who is not white, um, and it is a predominantly white world. Um, it, it might be better today than, say, it was 15, 20 years ago, but it's still not where it should be. Um, how um, It was always important for you to make it a better place for, for people that look like us, right? Mm-hmm. Always. And, it and, was always, uh, always top of mind for me. Yeah, and, and so uh, how do you think people can... Um, do the work that you've been doing and, and continue to make it a better space, say? Yeah, I think that, like, for people who, like, don't work in publishing, the most important thing is just to keep always looking for stories that reflect the actual diversity of the world around us. Um, that's really, really important. And it's not just books. It's, like, everything. It's, like, movies. It's um, it's music. It's whatever. Um, just always pushing and trying to find the thing that you maybe um, haven't found before is always really great. I think that, um, you know, in general, if for writers, I think that always um, making sure that whatever you're involved in is as inclusive and accessible as possible. Sometimes it's not always that possible, but sometimes it often is. And I, I know that, like, especially with emerging writers, they often feel like they don't have enough power or voice to push a little bit, but there's always one thing or two things that you can push for if it's something like you know the other person who is at the is appearing at an event with you if you know that other person is a single mom maybe helping that person get some child care costs uh covered uh if it's as simple as as requesting that the host of your event be someone who understands the culture that you're writing about or is mm-hmm. part of that culture that you're writing about really pushing for a publisher for example to pay for a sensitivity read if your book needs it there's all these little things that can be done and should be done um, and it's not asking too much. I mean, listen, I work for a publisher. None of that is asking too much. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I asked you uh, a, a moment ago about um, whether people will think you were kind to your mom in the book. Do, do you think you're kind to yourself in this book? No. <laughs> <laughs> not really. I mean, I think I am in some ways. 
but like I, I, I don't think that like I can be quite unsparing about myself. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I don't know that that's a bad thing, right? Like I, I don't ever want to be like complacently happy with myself. That seems weird. Who wants to be that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and you and, and you don't want to hold back even, and and that's a yeah. sense that I got as I was reading the book, um, that it is such a gift that that you're you're bearing yourself as you do because. Um, people will see themselves or, or they'll find something useful and not, not just be so. entertained by a book, say. Yeah, I hope so. I hope that people are, like, inspired to, you know, look at themselves with a sharper eye. I don't ever think that's a bad thing. And I, and I really do uh, think that, you know, understanding the world we live in and the people around us, it does genuinely start with understanding who you are and why you make the decisions you make um, because that gives you a lot of insight into why other people make the decisions that they make too, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you, can, if you can give yourself a lot of thoughtfulness and deliberation, um, you can al- always extend that to others. It only helps with empathy, I think, unless you're just a narcissist, in which case I can't help you. <laughs> <laughs> Were you a, more of a Dallas fan or a Knott's Landing fan? Oh, Dallas. Yeah. <laughs> Always Dallas. Dallas was like way more fun. This yeah, like so much more mayhem on Dallas. Yeah, I, I I watched that as a kid reruns as a kid, and and um, I tried to get into Knott's Landing because it's obviously a part of the say universe. But um, yeah, those early years. I mean, I I still go on YouTube late at night as a, as I alluded to a moment ago and watch scenes of it. Um, oh yeah, the acting is like, actually pretty good. You know. You know what? Larry Hagman is a very good actor. Yeah. <laughs> and like that, that trifecta of like Larry Hagman, Patrick Duffy, and Victoria Principal is yeah. like everything I've ever wanted. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, as I grew older, I, I came to appreciate people like, you know, Jim Davis and Barbara Bel Geddes as well. Yeah. Um, she, she, you know, she was in Hitchcock and she, she did Broadway, you know. I think she was the, um, she was in the original cast of Cat on the Hutton, uh, Cat on the Hutton Roof. And, um, even just watching her on on episodes of scenes in Dallas, especially, um, uh, that is a name I have not heard in a long time. Barbara Bel Getty. <laughs> Thank you for that. Well, it's something you might want to look up, say one day. Yeah, just, yeah, just, I think so. Jen, I so appreciate your time today. Thanks for this. It's a, a beautiful book. Congratulations and continued good luck with it. Thank you so much, Joe. The website for more is at sukfong dot com. The book is called Superfan: How Pop Culture Broke My Heart. It's uh, published by McClelland and Stewart. It's author Jen Sukfong Lee. Join me on the line from Burnaby, British Columbia. In Vancouver, I'm Joseph Plunton.